Well, good morning again. Let me again rush to uh, thank God for Dr. Michael Didway for the chance. Doc, how much time do I have? That's a really important question. Got it. Okay. I'll just stop at 35 minutes and just put the microphone down. <clears throat> this morning, I would uh, like to uh, preach uh, devotionally, if you will, uh, particularly uh, given our early time this morning. And uh, I'm just grateful you all showed up this morning uh, after last night. I'm really appreciative uh, for all of you and hope that God will use our time together in his word today to encourage uh, not only your teaching ministries, but your preaching ministries as well. Meet me in Acts chapter 6. I want to read into your hearing today one verse, verse 4. The text says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want to tag this text, uh, contextualizing it a bit. For us, the uneasy conscience of the American pulpit. I want to talk about the uneasy conscience of the American pulpit. You may be, uh, as I'm going to say, you may be seated. You may bow your heads, please, and pray with me. Father, thank you for the joy that is ours to be in this space, in this moment, for me to preach your word and for us to gladly receive what your spirit is saying. Would you grant me now clarity of mind, concision of speech, and conviction of heart that I may in this moment tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are two essential rules in the book of Acts for church growth, and they are these. Number one, get the gospel right. Number two, build a church worth joining. Suffice it to say that a lot of what passes for Christian preaching these days and these yet-to-be United States is not really Christian at all. Gardner Taylor, before he passed, wrote a seminal article on Christ less preaching in many of our Christian pulpits. We've been urged with an understanding that to get the gospel right is not to be merely concerned with propositional truth, but it is to be concerned about the application of that truth. And that's what I hope to communicate last night. It is not to reduce the gospel to a political action committee, a self-help manual for empty moralism and cheap piety, or personal conversion into a fraternal order of theological arrogance. Yet at the same time, to get the gospel right is not to restrict the message of the gospel from its proper application against structural unrighteousness, public injustice, and private privilege. 
And once we do get the gospel right, the question remains, what does it look like to build a church worth joining? In a world where many preachers measure success by how good our sermons were on Sunday morning, how many preaching engagements we secure, or how popularly known our books uh, become and our names are for the platforms we assume, or in my generation, how many Twitter followers we accumulate, the book of Acts strangely reorients our uneasy consciences to a radically different image of the role of the local pastor. With competing definitions and descriptions around the essential duties of the work of the pastor, the purposes of our office must be revisited, I think, by every generation, every rising pastor, and every matriculating class in the university. For after all, if purpose is not known, then abuse is inevitable. If the pastor is not clear on what God expects of him, and if the congregation is not clear of what God expects of their pastor, then the abuse of both the pastor and the people is inevitable. And that's a word because, Dr. Scharf, when I was at TED's, I was trying to think through what it meant to be the perfect pastor. You've heard of the perfect pastor, haven't you? He works 90 hours a week without missing a moment with his family. He makes $35,000 a year and manages somehow to give 28 of it back to the church. He is generous in his contributions to the occasional panhandler and is always ready to purchase fundraising items from the kids at the church. He has 45 years of experience, although he's only 35. He preaches effortlessly the hard truths of Scripture without offending anyone. He is never too serious, but he also never frowns. He never raises an offering, and yet the church is always overflowing with money. He understands hip-hop, R&B, rap, spoken word, and knows all of the latest artists, but he only listens to gospel music. He's at every kid's baseball game, soccer match, and basketball tournament, never misses a visit with the sick, and yet he spends 45 hours a week working on that sermon. The destitute find refuge in his office. The broken find healing in his counseling. The infirmed have been known to come back to life after his visits. He is the perfect pastor. There's only one problem. He burned out and died at age 36. This fictitious parable, this allegory, begs the question, how should the pastor really spend his time? And what should the pastor's job really be? And I want to suggest to you that these are not strange questions. And yet again, these are questions that must be revisited by every rising generation, by every matriculating class in the academy and must be investigated anew by every pastor. Because again, if we are not clear on our purpose, then abuse is inevitable. Acts chapter six gives us one of the clearest descriptions of the pastor's job in all of scripture, his duty and delight. In it, we find uh, the two primary 
tongues, the two folds of the pastor's ministry. It speaks not only of these two prongs, but of the inseparable, interrelated, and mutual dependence of them both. The pastor is essentially to be freed up from the important yet secondary aspects of ministry so that he can do two things well. And since he cannot get power by proxy, since he cannot be effective by imitation, the routine and necessary items of ministry must be handled by delegates of the pastor and not the pastor himself. If not, the church will suffer, the people will go hungry, and the world will not know God's power among his flock, and the preacher will forfeit his highest calling. This text is tailored to teach you and I that our pastors must be freed up to give themselves essentially to the two twin towers of his ministry. He must give himself to talking to God on behalf of the people. And then he must give himself to talking to the people on behalf of God. That's essentially what I want to argue today. I want to argue that the pastor's job is to talk to God on behalf of the people. And then to talk to the people on behalf of God. Those are the twin towers of pastoral ministry. And we have an enemy who will fly his weapons of mass distraction into both of them. First of all, this text says that we will, the apostles say, devote ourselves to prayer. Do you see that in your text? This text argues for the all-saturating power of prayer. It more than suggests that real power in ministry, real power, the kind of power we all want, real power in ministry is not found in the eloquence of the voice or the faithfulness of one's gestures or the skills of one's pragmatic leadership. No, power, real power, is found in a man who has time to pray and spends his time praying. When the curtain raises on Acts chapter 6, the Bible says that a major problem has come about in the early church in Jerusalem. Two ethnic factions of the church are at war with each other. Who would have thought? The Hellenistic Jews are complaining that their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. At least we can credit the early church for having a daily distribution of food. Times were tough. Widows were plenteous. The church was under severe persecution. And we learned that thousands of people have joined the church in a very small period of time. And everybody wants a growing church. Thousands of people joining in a small period of time. But nobody wants the problems that come with that many people joining at one time. And the preaching of the gospel is soaring in Acts chapter 6. I mean, it's doing incredible, unimaginable, unheard of things. People who have are starting to share with people who do not have. Oh, people are selling entire pieces of property and bringing the proceeds from the sales and laying them at the apostles' feet. People with food are welcoming fellow church members who have no food over to their homes for dinner. And the scripture says they share all things in common. What a beautiful church. Somewhere in the early days, a system was developed, resources were localized, and people knew where to go and who to call for help. And the problem is, is that the apostles, 
The men sent of God to shepherd the church were bogged down by the growing and enveloping needs of the early church. And as human nature would have it, the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews who were Greek by culture and practice, those Jews who didn't grow up in the Orthodox festivals, those Jews who missed BTU and Sunday school, those Jews were being neglected by the more Orthodox Jews. It's interesting to note in Acts chapter 6 that the solution to the problems of the early church was not to hire a consultation company. They did not go on a capital campaign, a new building program, new technology. But the solution in Acts chapter 6 was good biblical leadership. The response of the apostles, I think, is both striking and instructive. They do not deny the need or the legitimacy of the complaint. They do not deny the urgency with which the needs need to be addressed. No, their response is to turn their attention to the most consequential work of the church. If their work doesn't get done, then the plight of widows don't really matter. If their work is not completed, then the budgetary concerns of the church will not matter. If their work of praying and preaching doesn't get done, then a deacon in Acts chapter 7 doesn't get to testify at the gallows of public opinion. If their work of praying and preaching doesn't get done, then the magician in Acts chapter 8 doesn't come to see that the power of the Holy Spirit is not for sale and that miracles are God's prerogative. If they don't get the work of preaching and praying done, then a eunuch and a Pharisee terrorist do not come to know that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities. If their work of praying and preaching doesn't get done, then Peter doesn't get arrested and the gospel doesn't go to the Gentiles. All I'm saying is that too much is at stake in Acts chapter 6 for them not to give themselves to praying and to preaching. The narrative is clear. The interrelatedness between praying and preaching cannot be escaped. The preaching man has to be a praying man. If by prayerlessness we have a weak hold on God and a weak hold on his word, if through prayerlessness we become status seekers, men pleasers, culture fearers, then we cannot take hold of the church nor of the world for God. The, the, the text seems to suggest through the interrelatedness between prayer and preaching that the sermon itself cannot give rise in life-giving transformation if the man preaching the sermon has not been first transformed in prayer. Dead men preach dead sermons. And dead sermons kill churches. And dead churches kill entire communities. But men whose souls have been made alive through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, make hell shake when they mount the pulpit. Their sermons are as alive as they are, and they give life to their churches in a real sense and push against the gates of hell. In essence, this text is saying to us that prayerlessness really is powerlessness. Now, I preach it this morning because I'm afraid that we forget that we lose too much when we don't pray. When we don't pray, the beauty queen loses God in her vanity. When we don't pray, the scientist loses God in nature. 
When we don't pray, the professor loses God in the academy. When we don't pray, the politician loses God in diplomacy. But the preacher who does not pray loses God in the sermon. Prayer freshens our hearts. Prayer energizes our spirits. Prayer renews our minds. And prayer readies our souls. And I figured that I might have a quiet audience this morning who might not want to testify back to me about the power of prayer since I want to preach this one verse. So I decided to bring my own witnesses this morning and to testify myself about the power of prayer. Abraham prayed, and he found out that prayer will give you faith when you ain't got none. Jacob prayed, and he found out that prayer doesn't just change things, but prayer changes people too. Moses prayed, and the waters of the Red Sea opened its mouth, and the children of Israel walked on dry ground. Then he prayed again and found out that the water will collapse and swallow Pharaoh's army. Joshua prayed, and the walls of Jericho fell down flat. Gideon prayed for clarity, and 300 men defeated the entire Midian army. David prayed, and he found forgiveness from his heinous sin. Solomon prayed, and he built a temple for the Lord. Hezekiah prayed, and God gave him an extended lease on life. Job prayed for his friends when he should have been praying for himself. Jeremiah prayed with tears in his eyes. Hosea prayed with divorce papers in his hands. Daniel prayed three times a day. Jabez prayed one big prayer. Nehemiah prayed for favor to rebuild the wall. Paul and Silas prayed in prison and the walls of the jail fell down. John prayed on an island and Jesus prayed in a garden. And if Jesus had to pray, what makes you think that you and I will get through ministry without praying? The sequence I want to suggest in verse 4 is instructive to us. That's what I've been trying to preach so far. That prayer has to come before preaching. That the prayer closet is not to be secondary to the study, but that the study ought to emerge out of the prayer closet. I like the way Carl F. Henry said it. He said, pray before you study. Pray while you're studying. Pray when you stand up to preach. Pray while you're preaching. And for crying out loud, fall on your knees and pray when you get done preaching. The argument is for the all-saturating force of prayer because prayer is not as we sometimes treat it, a passive resignation to life circumstances. No, friends, but prayer is the most potent revolution. Prayer is not a way to get things from God, but the text suggests that prayer is the way to get more of God himself. We don't suffer from illustrations of those who are mighty in prayer. Charles Simeon prayed from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. every day. John Fletcher prayed. They said he kneeled at the same space in his office, and he prayed for so long until the breath of his prayers stained the wall of his study. Mother Teresa prayed for cycles of days at a time. We are called, in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, to talk to God in prayer. But then we're also called in Acts chapter 4, not only to talk to God on behalf of the people, but to talk to the people on behalf of God. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Do you see that in your text? We will devote. This is a 
future active indicative verb. It is a verb that anticipates action that hadn't quite happened yet. It's a verb that says, before I even get to ministry, I've made up my mind about ministry. What I'm going to do is devote myself to the ministry of prayer and to the word. But it is also an active idea, which means that nobody should have to motivate the preacher to pray and to study. But there is a sense in which the preacher takes his own initiative to give himself to prayer and to preaching. And friends, this is to say to you and I as well that preaching is a ministry. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if, if that idea has fallen on hard times in your context or not. But preaching is not a way to get over on more people. It's not a way to make oneself rich. It's not a way to get one's agenda accomplished. No, the preacher is both a student of the word and a servant of the word. We serve the people of God with the word. And yet that does not mean that people will remember how hard preaching really is. People in our churches forget that preaching is hard work. Maybe I'm talking about my own church and not yours. They act like sermons fall out of the sky. I talked with the brother yesterday who felt like all the preacher had to do was get up on Sunday and start talking. And I said to him, is that what you think this is? You have no idea what it's like to parse verbs and decline nouns, how to pour over ideas and try to distill them into packages that people can take away in portable metaphors. You have no idea how hard it is to outline a passage and then to do the tough work of assessing culture, of building bridges between the world of then into the world of now. You have no idea what it's like to bear the burdens of people in your congregation seeking to find a way to tailor the message to contemporary application and to craft a message so that the seniors and the millennials can appreciate what God's word has to say. And you do all of that with all of those hours each week only to stand up to preach and to find people sleep <laughs> while you preach. But preaching is hard work that requires devotion. And the word, this text says, the ministry of the word must be our priority. In other words, you and I cannot be found letting people trivialize our time, going here, meeting there. Before you know it, the week is done and we've got nothing to say on Sunday morning. And I'm afraid that the apostles put a primacy on Christian preaching that we do not necessarily maintain today. Let me remind you that the church functions by the preaching of the word. The church thrives by the preaching of the word. The church moves by the preaching of the word. The church rises by the preaching of the word. The church must maintain a primacy for Christian preaching. Give ourselves, the text says. Devote ourselves. Surrender ourselves to the ministry of the word. And I like even the way that that idea sounds. It, it says that the word itself has power to accomplish what the preacher cannot accomplish. I feel like preaching now. I said the word has power to accomplish what the preacher himself 
cannot accomplish. Do you all know what word I'm talking about? I'm talking about the very logos of God, the word, that word, which scholars says, suggest to you and I from Genesis chapter one, God used to bring the very world we live in into existence. That word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, you missed it, let me try it on this side of the room. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, that there, there it is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I like the way Gardner Taylor says it. Gardner Taylor said, when God said in Genesis chapter 1, all that was not started straining to become. God said, the Word of God, what scholars call the ex nihilo power of God, that God had nothing to work with in Genesis chapter 1. God stepped out on nothing. He looked at nothing. He spoke to nothing. But when he got done speaking, things appeared everywhere. God stepped out on nothing. He looked at nothing. He spoke to nothing. But when he got done speaking, the sun was in the sky and the moon was ruling by night. God stepped out on nothing. He looked at nothing. He spoke to nothing. But when he got done speaking, creation had been accomplished. I'm not merely arguing for creation, but I'm talking about the survival of our ministries and our schools in that very verse. God can step out on nothing. He can look at nothing. He can speak to nothing, but when he gets done, things appear everywhere. Can I testify for my own self one more time? That's how I made it through college with no money to pay tuition. God stepped out on nothing. He looked at nothing. He spoke to nothing, but his word has so much power that he doesn't need anything to work with. That's the word. We must devote ourselves to the ministry of this word. And we've got to tell people that the word has power. But we ourselves have to be convinced that the word has power. We need to tell them that God formed the world by the power of his own word. We need to tell them that in Exodus, he parted the Red Sea and delivered his people with the word. We need to tell them that in Joshua, he engineered a hostile takeover of Jericho with a bullhorn and a marching band. We need to tell them that in 1 Samuel, he rejected the tall, proud king who was hiding by the baggage in favor of the small, ruddy shepherd boy, all to set the stage for the coming of his own son through the power of his word. We need to tell them that in Jeremiah, he took a flight risk, slight schizophrenic prophet and won the nations to himself. We need to tell them that in Isaiah, he took a dirty mouth speaker and turned him into a roaring prophet.
We need to tell them that in Jonah, he saved a whole city with the preacher who didn't even want to show up for the revival. We need to tell them that in a crib in Bethlehem, he brought a baby into the world without the help of an earthly father and in eternity without the benefit of a mother. We need to tell them that he started the church in Acts with a band of misfits and rejects by the power of his word. If you and I stand to preach God's word, we will see things happen that the world has never seen before. We are called to be the men of God who stand in the gap for the people of God with the very word of God. Oh, it was Britain's King George V who was giving the opening address at a special disarmament conference. The speech was relayed by radio to the United States, and as the broadcast was about to begin, a cable broke, a cable broke in the New York radio station, and more than a million listeners were left without sound. A junior mechanic in the radio station, Harold Vivian, solved the problem. He looked at both ends of the cable, and he had one moment to make this decision. He picked up one end of the broken cable with one hand, and the other end of the broken cable with another hand, and allowed 250 volts of electricity to pass through him. And he became a kind of living link that allowed the king's message to get through to the world. Well, if I had a group of preachers here, I could preach that. This is the idea that the preacher stands up in the gap and lets God's word pass through him so that the world can hear what the king has to say. Oh, but friends, I want to tell you, the more they preached in Acts, the more they prayed in Acts, the church just kept on growing because that's what happens when we pray and when we preach. In Acts chapter 7, the deacon Stephen was preaching and they got mad at him and killed him, but the church just kept on moving. In Acts chapter 8, the young man with papers to terrorize the church, to persecute the church, kept on going and the more he chased the preachers, the more they kept on preaching until that word got a hold of him and the church just kept on growing. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch hears the gospel from the lips of a transported preacher. And the gospel goes into Africa before it goes to Europe. And the church just kept on growing. In Acts chapter 9, the man who in Acts chapter 8 was trying to destroy the church, and he got saved and started to plant churches all over Asia Minor, and the church just kept on growing. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas created what uh, PBS would call jailhouse rock. They started praying in that prison, and the word of God shook that prison. You ask me how the church just keeps on growing. I want to tell you it happened with a resolution in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles were put in jail, and they were reprimanded, and they were released, and they were scolded as they released. Do not preach anymore in that name. And they stood there and said, whether it's right before God or men for us to keep on preaching in that name, we'll let you answer that. But we will not stop preaching in this name because we've seen too much and we've heard too much to stop preaching in that name. And friends, I want to know, is that how you feel 
about what you have experienced? Will you keep preaching because you've seen too much and because you've heard too much? I've decided to keep on preaching whether they pay me or not because I've seen God do too much and I've heard him say too much. And when we come to the end of our ministries, somebody should have something to say about us and about the fervor with which we prayed and the integrity with which we preached. I want somebody to say something about me that's bigger than the school I went to. I want somebody to say something about me that's bigger than the connections that I made. I want somebody to say something about me that's bigger than the congregation that I preached. If they never say I was a good preacher, if they never say I was a good pastor, if they never say I was a nice person, I want them to say there was a man who prayed to God and he did his best to preach the word of God. And in that regard, I can say, as the hymn writer said, how to reach the masses, men of every birth. For an answer, Jesus gave the key. He said, if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. Lift him up. I said, lift him up. Still he speaks from eternity, saying, if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. Don't exalt the preacher. Don't exalt the pew. Preach the gospel, simple, full, and free. Prove him and never doubt a word that he said. I'll draw all men unto me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your goodness, for the power of your word. And I stand this morning to preach devotionally a reminder to my own soul. And I pray, dear Father, that you will take this word, cause it to germinate in the soil of our hearts, that we may be people who pray and preach. In Jesus' name, amen.